This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. I tried really hard to pretend, A, it didn't happen, and B, wasn't happening, and C, um, that they didn't know. And that was not healthy for any of us. My hope is that, again, by being open, because when I, when I would look at why, why, will I, why was I not willing to talk to them about this, um, it usually does go back to fear and shame. And I think being open with the kids in a child-appropriate way Letting them ask questions is so healthy. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is The Leaving Season with Kelly McMasters. Kelly is an essayist, professor, mother, and former bookshop owner. She's the author of The Leaving Season, a memoir and essay, which we will be diving into today. And her first book, Welcome to Shirley, a memoir from an atomic town, was listed as one of Oprah's top five summer memoirs and is the basis for the documentary film The Atomic States of America, a 2012 Sundance selection. Her essays, reviews, and articles have appeared in the New York Times and the Washington Post magazine and many, many other places. She holds a BA from Vassar College, an MFA in nonfiction writing from Columbia School of the Arts, and is currently an Associate Professor of English and Director of Publishing Studies at Hofstra University in New York. Kelly, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for asking me to be here. I'm really excited to talk about this today. I can't wait to dive in because I, I feel like I have was on a ride um, in your life for, well, actually most of your life and particularly the last 25 plus years. Um, mm -hmm. So we're going to get into all that. And I, I wanted to start by asking, when did you realize you were a writer? Oh, wow. I think I always knew I liked to write. Um, probably from the time I learned how to write. Um, and I think that came from the love of books and reading at the beginning, I just wanted to be inside a book at all times. I was the kid that 
would get called to dinner and have the book in my lap and get yelled at to put the book down. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And so when I understood that I could be the one creating the story, that was, that really um, was a portal for me. And then uh, something that I think we'll probably talk about today is I didn't really let myself think that I could be a writer for a long time because I came from a very blue collar background and that was not a job. Mm -hmm. So while I wrote and I loved writing, it took a very long time. I think for me, uh, validation, outside validation is very important. Unfortunately, it's something I work on and try to work on with my kids, but I wound up going to grad school, I think in part so that I could feel like I Mm. was able, had the right to call myself a writer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So looking back, I'm going to ask two, like two, two points in time here. Pre-grad school, when did you actually, if you could give yourself permission to think of yourself as a writer, you know, just in your own internal world, even though I know you were very uh, self-conscious and doubtful, when was that? And then when and did the MFA make you go, yes, identity, I'm a writer, you know, what, I'm just looking at the, the temporal, the, uh, t- the time between those two. Sure, sure. Um, so right after college, I was pretty certain that I wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, I thought that that was synonymous with security, which is what I was interested in. And uh, professionalism, I wanted to wear a suit. I thought that was very important. Um, and after I tried that and it didn't work out very well, that was not not my life's path. However, the law is words, right? So it made sense Mm -hmm. that I was drawn there. However, that was not my path. And I wound up falling into editing. And I was editing for a magazine. And it was the very sexy magazine, PC magazine, (laughs) as in personal computing in in the (laughs) late 90s. Um, And so it was not the glamorous uh, type of job that I imagined, but it was really fun. And I learned so much. And I had this incredible female boss. And it was one of the first times in my working life where I had a female boss. And Mm -hmm. that was a really important moment. And as I was editing, I had, I was building this stable of writers, of freelance writers. And I remember processing some of the invoices one month. And I had assigned one writer, I think maybe three stories at that time. And I realized they were actually making more than I was. <laughs> and I thought, oh my gosh, maybe maybe this is valuable. And, and at the time, there were two other editors who I was working alongside, and they had both been to MFA programs. Mm. And they had both been to MFA programs for fiction. I'm the first in my family to go to college, much less grad school. So I really mm-hmm. did not know about this world. And... I had just found the essay form. And so I just sort of discovered Joan Didion and E.B. White and, you know, John McPhee and these sort of classic old essayists um, that I fell in love with. And I remember sitting back in our little cubicles and they were talking about their fiction MFA experiences. And I said, wow, I sure wish there was a nonfiction MFA. And they looked at me. <laughs> like I was nuts and said, um, right. 
there yeah. is. Mm-hmm. And from that point on, I started researching. Uh, and that's when I thought, okay, maybe I can, I can do this in a professional way. Mm-hmm. And so I think the money and security, both of those things tied together, let me uh, go on that path. And then I think really um, after the MFA, what I realized was that, and I will say the same even right now, uh, there is no outside affirmation, even after writing two books, mm-hmm. co-editing two books. You know, I have a little stack now in on my bookshelf. It comes from inside. It's not like you go to med school and you are then a doctor. You mm-hmm. go to the MFA program. It doesn't if you were not a writer before the MFA program, you're not going to be a writer after. <laughs> they don't They don't make you a writer. Um, you have to wake up every day and make that choice. And some days I absolutely feel like a writer and other days I do not. And most mm-hmm. days it's a mix. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. And And the importance of us all thinking about the difference between are the outside world validation, wherever that is, parents, teachers, whomever, uh, bosses versus our own internal validation and knowing about who we are. So um, I think most of us humans struggle with that uh, to various degrees. So your your background also being the first person to attend college, um, let alone graduate school, which is a huge feat, um, also helps me understand now the, to some degree, I think the, the length of time, we'll get to this, that you lived out in the country, um, with a completely different, um, culture, mm-hmm. um, landscape, everything than your previous adult life and now adult life in New York city, right. um, so I, I, I do want to get into that, but I am, I guess what I can't get out of my mind, which is more in the beginning of the book, is um, your memoir, is 9-11. Mm. So um, I realized how much I compartmentalized 9-11, um, being on the West Coast uh, with our firstborn, with, like being an infant and... Um, like all of different life, uh, all of the things that you write about, about new life and new, and new parenthood, and then seeing 9-11 happen over and over and over and over again on TV. And there you were at ground zero when it happened. And just, could you just say a little bit about not only that experience, but what was it like to review it in your writing in such vivid detail? Because it grabbed me. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, And I know that is, I think, particular to that day that no matter where people were, uh, the the experience, you know, there, there are moments within generations. I remember my parents talking about when JFK was shot, right? Everybody Mm -hmm. knows where they were. Um, And I think with 9-11, I think, the visual aspect of that, whether you were in New York or on the West Coast, those repeated visuals, uh, I think, are part of why that day lives so deeply mm-hmm. in 
so many people. What I found to my surprise, I think, and I think a lot of the book talks about different ways this is true. I thought I was alone in that experience. And what I now can recognize as PTSD, um, Mm -hmm. you know, a a trauma response, I didn't understand that then. And also I had survived. I was okay. Uh, And Mm -hmm. so I didn't understand why I couldn't get past it. And so Mm -hmm. I think that that day really now that we're so many years beyond it, when I speak to people about it, it always amazes me how present, how so many people can be right back there, especially if you were in New York, you know, from sensory details, a certain smell in mm-hmm. the air, the blue of the, of the sky, you know, people always talk about that. I think my first experience in understanding the way that it affected my mind and my heart was when I went back to do this study a few years later. And it was um, through a British university and they were actually studying PTSD. And they asked Mm -hmm. for, to interview people who had been there. And they showed me a map and asked me to review the day. And I pointed on the map where I thought I was standing. And I told him which subway I thought I took. And he, (laughs) he very gently said, from what you're describing, I think actually you must have been standing over here, not there. And I thought, no, absolutely. I know what the story is. And Mm -hmm. afterwards I took a walk and a lot of the buildings didn't exist anymore, of course, uh, at that time. And I took a walk to where he said I was standing and he was absolutely right. Mm. And so the way that our memories protect us um, was a really new lesson for me. And I think that day in particular feels like in many ways, and I'm sure we'll get to this, feels like divorce in that there is such a clear before and after Mm -hmm. when nothing is the same. And that day, I think for so many of us, Mm -hmm. there is just before and after. Right, right. And you wrote about, I think it might have been, it was just, I think it was about this time. Mm-hmm. And I think you were talking to a therapist. And the, the, what you wrote was that you learned through this comment, um, interpretation is it takes a while for you to realize you're in danger. And there's sort of a freeze response. And of course, this is a theme that you let us in on of that freeze response and going to action ultimately in the different trials and tribulations of your um, enriched life. <laughs> and I, I, so my question is, do you think that is part of your temperament? Because we all have, I mean, we all have the fight, flight, freeze response. And or was that something that may have developed out of 9-11 and a trauma? I do think even before 9-11 that that was my natural inclination is to sort of hang back, observe, wait, uh, not jump to conclusions too quickly, research, right? Uh, I think this these things have served me well in my life in the past. And sometimes they do not. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I think I think 
for me, the frustration is when I look back at a time when, why did I not do X, Y, Z? Why did I not take action? Why did I not leave? Or why did I not um, run in that moment? And it makes me question my evaluation of other things as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Continuing to go with, um, yeah, with trauma and a concept that I was wondering about, which is sometimes called trauma bonding Mm -hmm. is, you know, here you are with your boyfriend R referred to as R in the book and eventual husband living that together as your relationship is forming, how much do you think, how much of an impact was 9-11 and your co-experience of that in your, the trajectory of your relationship? Right. I, I think it took me many years to understand this or even consider the fact that it might have anything to do with the relationship. Mm-hmm. But I think it absolutely was an example of trauma bonding. I don't say that in the book because I didn't know that at the time and I was trying Mm -hmm. to remain committed to what I knew at that point. But Mm -hmm. I would say that that is probably Mm -hmm. what happened. And I think so much, I talk about watching those towers just disappear in Mm -hmm. this cloud of ash. and, And there are these two bodies that were watching out the window just fall and in the reflection of the window is our two bodies mm-hmm. and and we are still standing and mm-hmm. to me i think i was so afraid that everything would fall apart mm-hmm. if we were not standing together and mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. i think is one of the reasons that I, that it did take me longer than I think <laughs> uh, was probably healthy to leave. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So powerful. And the, the factors that bring us together and the situations around it, like there's so many variables um, to this mystery of life and relationship that we live in. And then going to the country, (laughs) right? The idyllic farmhouse acres away from the hustle and bustle of the city. I mean, all that, um, the fantasy, the utopia versus the heterotopia, which we're going to talk about, like (laughs) what, you know, as you look at that now, Mm. you know, so everyone Beautiful old 1860 farmhouse, the uh, Pennsylvania countryside, um, barely a light flicker from maybe one cabin around that you can see at all. Um, And your boyfriend and eventual husband is an artist, Mm -hmm. a real live painting artist. And um, like, describe that experience to, to do that and to get there. It did feel a little bit like I was in a storybook. And I think that was one of the hardest parts to untangle later. 
because if everything is so perfect, why do I have this sort of dark pit in here? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I would explain, I would talk to people about my situation and, and especially once I opened a bookshop, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm, I moved out to the country. I, I, my, I have two toddlers who are running around in their diapers and rain boots in this acreage in this beautiful, you know, raspberry, uh, bramble, honeysuckle land that we have and with ru- wild rhubarb and roses and, um, and we've got this old farmhouse and, I mean, the night sky up there is unlike anything that I've ever experienced because it's so pure and there's so much beauty. It's overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And, and yet, right. I think, uh, that's, that's the hard part. And I still, I, and look, some folks did come to visit and immediately they would step out of their car and be terrified mm-hmm. and say, how can you, how can you live up here? How can you stay here by yourself? Aren't you so scared? Um, and most, most of the time I was not, it was when I was little, I grew up in a place where the kids went across the street to this wildlife refuge. And that was where we spent most of our summers after school, right? In a, in a way, it felt like coming home to me to have the, that open acreage and, you know, these silvery newts and uh, the birds and the even the bobcat, which was a little scary, but um, it felt right in a way that no other place had. It felt for the first time like I had found home. And I think that was the hardest part about leaving was Mm -hmm. that I, it's not that I, I had a line in there in an earlier revision saying it was the place I was happiest. Mm -hmm. And my editor, actually it was the, the editor's assistant who read it and drew. And she said, I'm not sure this is true. Everything you've just spent pages (laughs) explaining Mm -hmm. why this was sort of a dangerous place to be living. And I realized she was absolutely right. It's where I imagined I could be my happiest. Mm. And I think that is the the fantasy, right? It's hard to give up on. And when you're a perfectionist, especially, um, accepting failure (laughs) uh, is hard to do. Mm -hmm. So the the fantasy, the utopia... Mm-hmm. versus the heterotopia and that was that's a new concept to me so share share what is what is this idea of utopia versus heterotopia sure sure oh it's so much fun um i did not know that term until i guess about uh 2 years ago <clears throat> and and when i first heard it i make this joke in the book but i really did i thought is that like a utopia for straight people i don't understand <laughs> what that means mm-hmm. um which that is not what it means but essentially It's a space uh, that exists within our world. It's real. And yet it lives outside of our cultures, whatever the predominant culture is, uh, of that culture's um, rules and boundaries. So, uh, for example, one thing, so a a cemetery might be a good example of a heterotopia or um, a boarding school or a jail, right? So... Mm. You have to, the, 
it's porous, right? So mm-hmm. I could right now go into a jail. Um, mm-hmm. I also can leave the jail. And however, for the folks who are in that situation, they are bound to different rules than the visitors. Mm-hmm. And so what I was finding um, when we first moved to the country, we were weekenders, right? And so we were only privy to a particular part of that world up there. There is a whole separate existence. Uh, the, there are the weekenders and the locals, right? Mm-hmm. And I grew up, again, in a town that was a service town to the Hamptons. Mm-hmm. And so when when I would go to the Hamptons, I would see the service experience of that. Mm-hmm. If you were full-time Hamptons, chances are you might not even be aware of all of what's happening underneath because you, you don't see it. You can't, you're not a part of it. And so similarly, when I made that transition from part-time to full-time, suddenly we were inducted in many ways into a different part of the culture, but not completely. So I could enter, right? The example that I give in the book is this barn. It's a, it's sort of a hangout barn. Uh, you know, there are no locks on the doors. Anybody could walk in, but there are rules that are established. They're not written. Uh, there's, but you have to learn them. And in order to, to be invited in, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's very different than if, say, I were to drive up there right now and just walk right. in. Um, right. So that's, that's the heterotopia difference. And when talking about this, you you say belonging is subjective. Mm-hmm. Um, when did you feel, how long did it take mm-hmm. to actually, uh, did you ultimately feel like you were one of them? You were there a long time. What, 10 plus years? Mm-hmm. Yeah, about um, j- almost yes, and yeah, yeah. and I I think hmm, that's a really good question. I don't I don't know where where we lived was about thirty miles outside of the nearest town, mm-hmm. and out there I felt like I belonged when I was walking on a trail, you know. Holding the ha- holding hands with my son, going mushroom hunting, um, but when I interacted with some of the other folks, and we would go, I, I enjoyed it. I loved going to you know the deer processing plant down the down the street, which is essentially just someone's shed, um, or uh, you know going to the church where they make the pierogies and have this annual festival, um, and I I could participate. And I, even if I felt like maybe I belonged, I don't think that they would say that I belong. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think as a, as a woman, when I first arrived, I was not a mother. And I think I, in, in the book, I say that women are essentially valued for babies and pies, right? So you're a homemaker uh, or mm-hmm. you're... The wife, you are you are usually either a wife, an ex-wife, or a mom. And hmm. if you're if you don't fit squarely in any of those categories, then they really are confused. And mm-hmm. 
and are not sure how to relate. And so I would find myself trying to contort a little bit uh, to to find some sense of belonging. For me, it was really only when I opened the bookshop and Mm -hmm. then a sense of community there really came about with mostly other women. You didn't really think about when you were younger, you didn't really think about marriage, your dad helped a little bit with that with some of his questions. <laughs> you know, like, you know, you really don't have to get married. Mm-hmm. Um, you didn't, so you didn't really think about marriage. You didn't think about being a mother and there you are in the country, uh, married with eventually two children. Um, what, like, what was that awareness transition awakening like? I think for a lot of my life, I often could identify what I did not want, Mm -hmm. but I didn't take the time to identify what I did want. And I have a a book that I co-edited that came out in February called Wanting Women Writing About Desire. And I, again, that was something that I thought was broken in me alone But what I realize is so many uh, people and writers that we went to, when we made that call, what do you want? Especially mothers, but, you know, across the board, people wrote back and said, I don't even know. And that their essays were about not knowing, not identifying what they, when I was in the early cycle of motherhood, I remember going into a store and it was the first time I went into a food store without my kid. And I just stood there. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, I don't even know what I'm hungry for. Mm -hmm. And that was really scary in a way to be so disconnected from that part of me that is saying, oh, this is what you want. Mm -hmm. Um, And then as I look back on my life, a lot of the choices that I made in particular that led me there, I think was mostly against something. So I I didn't want tradition. I didn't want convention. I didn't want the suburbia I grew up in, um, which is where I live now, of course, Mm -hmm. because that's life. And so I thought, well, this is different. <laughs> mm-hmm. I didn't realize that by, by making those choices, I wasn't, I was choosing what I didn't want, not what I right. did. Right. And with your um, former husband and father of your children, um, you also chose non-convention. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Um, yes. And that was something I, I understand that. And, you know, we were in love and Mm -hmm. I, I think in many ways, what drew me to him was he knew exactly what he wanted and that was intoxicating, whether Mm -hmm. it was that he wanted to paint all day long, whether it was that, you know, he wanted to be with me, uh, and, Whatever he wanted, he wanted it, expressed that he wanted it, and wanted it fully. And uh, and I 
didn't know how to do that. And that was very um, attractive to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It didn't, I think my, my trouble was sometimes I adopted his desires mm-hmm. and made them and supported them. And I, I mixed that up. I thought, well, he wants that. So I want that too. Or I want that to be true so I can help him without really thinking, but is that actually what I want? Right. Right. So complex. (laughs) Yes. You really made me think in when describing the part, the the situation, the part in the book where he um, made a painting of the boys and then posted it. Um, which was controversial, and how you compare in some soft ways about your, I mean, really trying to look at it from all sides mm-hmm. and comparing you as a, a memoir writer mm-hmm. writing about your kids wondering too, you know, what am I doing? Am I doing it correctly? What are the ramifications? And, you know, all through the years, um, in my writings and my speak talks, you know, my, my kids are come into it and the older they got, I realized I needed to say less, be more general and really started to think about their lives and their privacy, even though the stories were going to be beneficial and helpful to others. And so I really appreciated how you grappled with that very difficult experience and how your words impact everyone, including R. Right. Exactly. I think that was one thing that it took me a very long time to arrive at and, and understand my own reaction because the, there was so much anger. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't see through it. I didn't understand what I was actually angry about in that situation. And there were plenty of other people who were angry (laughs) or saying this was wrong. Mm -hmm. But none of them quite matched up with how I was feeling. And so it took many revisions. I think that piece I worked on probably the longest out of all of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, a really wonderful writer, Joanna Rakoff, who is both a novelist and a nonfiction writer. Um, We sat together and were talking about it. And she asked a really important question. And she said, but don't you think he did that to be closer to them? And there was an element of compassion in Mm -hmm. there that allowed me to kind of tamp down the anger mm-hmm. and I'll be forever grateful for her comment. I do think that that is true. What is also true <laughs> is mm-hmm. that he put his needs above right. the children's. Right. And I think in some respect with each line, I have to weigh whose needs am I putting Mm-hmm. above or where where are those priorities lining mm-hmm. up and right. my hope is with my writing that I'm 
I, I say in, in, in the book that I'm clothing their bodies in a way mm-hmm. that protects them. Mm-hmm. And I also want to make enough space so that there is room for their stories. I don't mm-hmm. want them to feel like this has to be their story because right. it's, it's mine. It's just mine. And that's very, very important to me. Like you said, as they go, get older, I think it's so hard because physically children are a part of us, right? Biologically, they, and I, I tease them all the time, you know, that they, they are an extension of our DNA or my children are an extension of my DNA. Mm-hmm. And, and so when they're very little, not only are their bodies often not separate from you because they're on top of you all the time, um, mm-hmm. attached to you, but it's your job to oversee their physical bodies. And then when it comes time to separate, it's, it's really hard as a parent to understand where those boundaries are. And so I wanted to Mm -hmm. give space also that, yes, I think there was a part that came from loneliness and, and wanting to Mm -hmm. be close to his children, but then that the act of painting it is different Mm -hmm. than the act of sharing it. Yes. And only, and you, you, you articulate this so well in the book, the complexities of R and his complete absorption in his painting and his, in a sense, his approach and his um, philosophy to it. And so only you knew, only you could know, even as astonished and upsetting as it was, where he was coming from relative to the rest of the world and the rules and all these things we're grappling with, with social media. Um, and I just want to give you feedback that I really felt your kids were, are completely closed and completely protected. Um, and you navigated all of that with the utmost respect. Thank you. Yeah. That means a lot. Yeah. A medium, you saw a medium and the medium <laughs> said two things. One, I'm just going to bring it in just because it was interesting, but I'm really, it's the second one that I want to ask you about. The first one is, um, you know, he's not the one for you and you know it. There's that one. Um, Ding, ding. And then the second one was, you're going to be a great mother. It's just going to take you some time. Mm -hmm. How true is that for you? (laughs) I think I was shocked on both accounts because (laughs) I, I was already a mother. I was, Mm -hmm. and I thought, well, she doesn't know what she's talking about. Um, (laughs) And yet it turns out, I think that was one of the truest statements ever Mm. for me in my experience, in order to become the mother that I believe in order to become the best version of my mothering self, I needed to leave my marriage. And I think that's, that's important in terms of convention and wanting to always do everything right. 
Mm -hmm. which is how I grew up. Um, I was terrified of the idea of being a single mother. Mm -hmm. There just was such shame in that identity Mm -hmm. to me, unfortunately. And I think that, you know, pervades our culture even today when it's so common, uh, just that, you know, broken family, single mother, um, failed marriage, all of those awful terms. Mm-hmm. And really, uh, for me, I was spending so much emotional investment on trying to maintain balance and harmony and focus on, uh, on keeping the peace and trying to sustain things in the, within the household because they were so volatile. I wasn't present for my children in the way that I was able to be after we left. Mm-hmm. It was just the three of us. And all of a sudden, a whole part of my brain was suddenly open and available. Yeah. Available, yes. And I was able to connect and really um, nourish myself and the children and our relationship in a way that was just not possible uh, earlier. And so I really thought, I, mm. for the first few years, I really thought that I hated being a mother. And that is not true at all. And I was so grateful mm. to discover that. Mm-hmm. But it, for me, in my experience, it took it took my leaving uh, to really, it took my leaving to make that known to me. Yeah. Yeah. You describe the difficulty, the heartache, the uh, just the complexity of leaving a marriage um, in very raw form, an authentic form, which I think helps anyone uh, who's reading this uh, in their relationship, regardless of just regardless of what season they're in. And what jumped out at me is that distinction that was told to you and then you really grappled with the difference between running away versus mm-hmm. leaving. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. That distinction was, again, from my father, who, <laughs> for whatever reason, I just feel very lucky that he came from a very conventional family. And yet, he had some pretty wildly progressive ideas, uh, <laughs> especially for, you know, a man in the 70s raising a daughter. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, when I knew I needed to leave, I took the kids and went to my parents' house and really just thought I would stay. (laughs) I just, I never wanted to go back. Uh, They were very little. And I just needed a safe harbor. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my parents and I are very close and they're very supportive. At that time, because of our relationship, uh, we were estranged mostly because they did not get along with mm-hmm. my husband at the time. And so often I was forced to make choices 
a lot of friends, lost a lot of friends, mm-hmm. separated from my family um, mm-hmm. out of loyalty to the marriage. Right. And, but they were, they never stopped being there for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were there every time I needed them. And so I went that day and just, I think I just planned to stay forever <laughs> in my mind. And, you know, I, I talked to them about what was happening in the marriage and, and my dad, both, both my parents said, we hear you, we are here for you, but you need to go back and you need to do this the right way. And they were right. Ultimately, mm-hmm. I don't think I, ever expected that to be their response, but, but I was running away Mm -hmm. and, and it was not the right way to do it. And so I think, and that's not to say, again, this is my story. This is not Mm -hmm. for, I'm not saying this was the right, this is the right way for everyone else. And certainly if you're in danger, yes, (laughs) just Mm -hmm. run. Um, But for me at that moment, I needed to get myself into a position where I could leave and support my children, support myself, be in a position where I could, I could express to him. And we did couples counseling for quite a while, um, Mm -hmm. what my intention was. And even that took a very much longer uh, mm-hmm. than expected. But I think the difference is one running away is an action that is fear-based mm-hmm. and in leaving the agency is with you. Mm-hmm. You're not, res- it's not a response. It's an action. A choice. Yeah. Yes. It's a choice. And I think that is, um, more clear headed and allows you to make, to make the next choice in a smarter way. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. That's, um, well articulated. Um, and I'm always just, um, fascinated by, again, the messages we get at different times in life and sometimes we're ready to hear them and sometimes we're not. And then you had a friend, I think it was at the bookstore who said, you know, you can leave. Right. And it was just, you could have heard that a couple years earlier. It would not have, it was just, all of the events that lined up and then it was like, whoa, I can. Yeah. Right. So as we are winding down here, the process of writing this memoir, which took years and years, now that you're at this place with it being just out, mm-hmm. what can you tell us that you, what did you learn about yourself Hmm. from this process as a person and as a mother? Hmm. Yes. It's only been out for one day, (laughs) (laughs) but it is knowing that it's out there and doesn't just live in my computer is a Mm -hmm. very different experience. And so far there were quite a few early readers and I think one thing that I hope people get from the book is that from I'm dealing with so many things that I feel ashamed about throughout the book. 
my own failings, what I see as my own failings. And each time when I finally share with someone um, and talk about it, I realize I'm not as alone as I thought. And my hope, and so far what seems to be happening is by sharing these difficult things, which, you know, I'm not writing a book because I think it's so different or so amazing or anything like that. It's, it's mm-hmm. so common. Yeah. And yet when I was going through it, I couldn't find a book talking about these very normal things. And so what I'm realizing is getting, receiving emails from people and parents and uh, spouses who feel similarly Mm-hmm. And suddenly feel a little less alone. And I think that is the community building part of that is really mm-hmm. important. Mm-hmm. And and that's how we beat the shame, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think as a parent, what I realized is in writing this, and I did, you know, really question every line. My kids were there. <laughs> mm-hmm. They they know everything that happened. And so for a long time in my own life, before I put it in the book, I tried really hard to pretend a, it didn't happen Mm -hmm. and B wasn't happening and C um, that they didn't know. Right. And that was not healthy for any of us. Mm -hmm. And now my hope is that again, by being open because when I when I would look at why why will I why was I not willing to talk to them about this, um, mm-hmm. it usually does go back to fear and shame and right. And I think right. being open with the kids in a child appropriate way, yes, you know uh, certainly, yes. um, letting them ask questions, yes, is yes so healthy. Absolutely. And of course, your intentions were, um, were true to protect them. Yeah. And it just it, to speaking to this to divorce and talking about divorce, and um, you spent all this time protecting, and then you finally got up the nerve to mention to them that <laughs> the divorce is, uh, is, is, is happening, it's official. And they're like, um, we already thought that happened a while ago, right? <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I want to, before we're getting, to, we have to do the parent footprint moment question, but yes. I just want to say one more like kudos to you is, so I am a perfectionist in recovery that our audience knows about, um, comes up from time to time. And I have to tell you until you said you're a perfectionist or as a perfectionist person, I wouldn't have known. So this is like such, this is like awesome because you put yourself out there in such a vulnerable way of all of the bumps and bruises and scars and perceived mistakes. So well done. Like that is the, um, the anti-perfectionist tome right there. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. My parents will be very proud to hear that. Very (laughs) proud. Yes. Doing great work. Okay, Kelly, it's time. Great. Here we go. Tell us about a time when you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, or even an awareness of your own parents, and that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, your kids, and or those you love. 
I love this question so much. And I love listening to the other folks that you interview and how they answer. So I really thought a lot about this. I hope that this is an okay answer, but I am an only child. And when I became a parent, something that I did not understand, um, and this goes back to that sort of um, territorial, this child is mine feeling um, of when you're, when they're small. When I, I had my first son and it was so animalistic in, in just, you know, uh, our attachment. And I thought, well, this is how it will always be. And then I had a second son and I was also, you know, I feel like I just spent years with one on my back and one in, you know, mm-hmm. the carrier on my chest. And then there came a point where suddenly they started forming a relationship with each other. And I, I know that sounds simple, but as an only child, I never mm-hmm. had that mm-hmm. and I never witnessed it. And the more I understood that they were building a relationship out completely outside of me that I had nothing to do with and that they would have that relationship for the rest of their life, mm. really, um, I, I have this, this quote, this beautiful poem, um, it's the Cahil Gibran poem, Your Children. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I won't read the whole thing, but there's there's one, that idea that, uh, you know, you are the bows from which your children are living arrows are sent forth. And the idea that they are with you, but they do not belong to you. Mm-hmm. That idea, that, that was the first time it made sense and that I fully understood. And from that moment, it has been a really primary part of my parenthood that they are the arrows. I am the bow. Mm. And I'm, I mean, I, yes, I, I yes. am the bow. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Sorry. I, they are the arrows. I am the bow. Mm-hmm. And the ability to, to witness that so early on was a, a really impactful moment in my parenting because it helped me see my children as separate from me mm, in a way so, that yeah. I think is re- even, even now when, you know, they're, they're one is taller than me. <laughs> right? Um, right. And, and I feel like, but, but you were just in my hands. Um, and, mm-hmm. and it's, it's really helpful to build that distance, I think, and healthy yeah. uh, that they are their own people. So healthy. And, um, I mean, that, that's, that awareness is so, um, informative for all of us that we, we, they, they, they come through us in various ways, depending (laughs) on who we are, um, male or female. And, um, and they don't belong to us. They're on their journey. Yes. And it is very hard to not feel like they belong to us and should do what we want them to do and represent us the way we want to be represented. And yet they're all on their own journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank goodness. Yes. <laughs> Kelly, thanks so much. I, I just, again, I had to say, I just really... Um, it was really meaningful being in your life and part of your life over the last several days, um, reading your memoir. And I know everyone 
who picks it up will benefit from your authenticity and your vulnerability. Um, and, and, and it's, a, it's an, uh, your hope it's, it's, a, it, of, of endings and beginnings yes. over and over and over again. Tell everyone where they can get this book, also your new edited book and all of your works. Absolutely. Well, you can always find me at kellymcmasters.com. And I would say find your, since I am a former bookshop owner, find your local indie, mm -hmm. uh, or you can go to bookshop.org or any of the online retailers. Um, it's available wherever books are sold. Do it, people. The leaving season. Go get it and share it. Thank you all for listening. Share this episode, please, with everyone you think would benefit. Thank you for your five-star reviews. Thank you for being part of our community. Do your best to be that person you want your child to become and ask yourself that guiding question, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by Pro Tunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.